You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, welcome to, uh, I think we're week four of our, of our series on the Beatitudes. I'm, uh, I'm going to be uh, sharing, but I have to admit a couple things. We just had the men's retreat, which was a lot of fun, but tiring. And then somehow I got convinced to play for the church soccer team last night. And I couldn't move this morning. I was just like, Karen's like looking at me. I was walking like an old man. Uh, yeah. Anyhow, so I did. Do you want to know how many goals I scored? Yeah. No, I was striker, <laughs> which is a way. It was funny. They put me a striker. And then I talked to our coach, Cadence, Brad Streetall's son. And uh, we said, like, who do you put on striker? He goes, he goes, I put people who really don't know very much. I put them up front of striker. I'm like, hey, you put me a striker. He goes, yeah, I, yeah, that was that was just mean, rotten kid. OK, we are going to carry on in our series. Um, yeah. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Mike has just put up the uh, the notes for this week on the uh, on the chat because I'm not sure if they're up on the internet. Okay, so um, let's carry on in our series on the Beatitudes. Now, all eyes this way, including you guys, all eyes, even those who don't have the camera on, all eyes this way. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the Beatitudes. I'm gonna, actually, I'm going to read the first part of the Beatitude and have you complete the second half without looking at your notes or your Bibles, okay? Are you ready? You do that this weekend, so you'll be all ready for this weekend when I preach. Okay, so uh, Matthew chapter 5, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> I think I heard... Kingdom of God, bit of kingdom of heaven. Okay. <laughs> I heard a bit of inherit, which is coming up still. All right. Let's try the second one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they, there we go. Okay. For they shall be comforted. You guys say it along too, just because you're in cyberland. Okay. Um, blessed are the meek. Very good. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Okay, for they shall be filled or they shall be satisfied. I'll, I'll accept both answers. Blessed are the merciful. That's right, for they shall be received mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. That's a, that's a very cool, that'll be a fun one to do. Um, blessed are the peacemakers. Oh, it got, it suddenly got really quiet. <laughs> You're all like, yes, blessed are the peacemakers. I agree, yes. Um, for they shall be called sons or, or uh, children of God. Okay. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. It actually bookends it. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Yeah, so that's it. It goes on both sides. Because remember, we said um, because for theirs is the kingdom of heaven appears on the first, and on this one that the idea is that all these beatitudes are about the kingdom of heaven. What it means to be a gospelized person. Okay, so you all have homework to do this week. I hope you realize that. We'll do it again on on, on Sunday. Um, one of the constant themes in the Beatitudes is that they are surprising. And that's a bit of the problem with over-familiarity. Sometimes we're so accustomed to some of the teachings in the Beatitudes that we fail to see how strange and how surprising they are. Take, for example, today's Beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Even if you'd never grew up in the church, my guess, you have heard the meek shall inherit the earth. You, you came across, like, you must have come across this at some point. I came across it, and I was not a Christian. I came across it in the overture of 2112 by Toronto's super trio Rush. And so there's this big song, one of my favorite albums, 2112. And the over is one of those is like in the 70s where the whole album side was one song in, in different parts. But there's the first part was called the overture, and it's just a kicking song. Oh, is it kicking? Right? Yeah, I can see Bruce. Yeah, it's kicking. It's a kicking tune. And there's only one line in it, right? And the line is, and the meek shall inherit the earth. Right? Heather, was I close? I was close, yes. That was my, my Getty Lee, right? Was that all right? Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> now, I didn't know that. Like, I didn't, I actually, I wasn't quite sure even where that was from. But I knew that line. And the other thing I knew is that it was actually in the song, if you know the song, it's actually, a, is, is quite um, a negative take on that meaning. Because the whole story of the song is what happens to the earth when the meek and the mediocre take over. When the meek and the mediocre take over the world, it becomes oppressive. And what disappears is creativity and innovation. And so that's the whole theme of, of Russia's 2112. Um, it was not a good thing for the meek to inherit the earth. And you know what? A lot of people today would still agree. They would shake their heads at Jesus' teaching here. They say, well, why? Why in the world would we ever want a world where the meek and the mild ran the show? Shouldn't we look for the strong and the confident to lead us into the future? Who wants a hesitant leader? And the popular thinking today is that when you and I live out of, not out of our meekness, but out of our strengths, and our abilities will be successful in life and the world will be a better place. But here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, with all the crowds gathered around, the disciples sitting at Jesus' feet, we hear Jesus cry out, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so if the first beatitude is puzzling, blessed are the poor in spirit, and the second beatitude is well, just a little bizarre, happy are the poor or happy are the sad. The third beatitude really turns things upside, upside down. 
And if there are ever a place where we can see how the kingdom of heaven differs from the kingdom of the world, it's here. Because we're introduced to a new person, this new humanity, uh, and this person is unlike the world. The world will not understand them. In fact, the world will not really be drawn to the meek, or maybe we'll have a difficult time with the meek, which leads to the next beatitude, or later on in the beatitudes, which leads to persecution, right? And so just to get going on this, let me uh, pray, and then I'm going to ask you guys a question to consider. Let me pray. Jesus, we uh, come to you. You are the giver of the Sermon on the Mount. You're the smartest person who's ever walked this planet. Um, you are not a philosophy. You're not a worldview. You're not some abstract set of ideas, but you are Jesus, and you are personal, and you are love, and you are life. And so we pray that you would speak to us tonight the truth of this beatitude. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so here's a question to consider. It'll be a fun question. All my questions are fun, of course. Yes. How likely are your friends and neighbors to know that you're a Christian? And how would they know? Is it by what you do? By what you say? Or how you live? Or all three? Now, I'm assuming that some of you may say, you know what? I'm actually not a Christian yet. Um, so this question makes no sense to me. That's okay. Um, you don't have to answer it. Um, but if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, how likely are, are your friends and family to know that that's who you are through what you do, what you say, how you live, all three? And what is it about how you present yourself that stands out the most? And some of you may, you know what? I'm just very open. I just like to tell everybody about Jesus. Or others of you say, you know what? I just really like to help my neighbors and, you know, I just like to do things for them. And Or others of you might say, actually, none of my friends know that I'm a Christian. So it could be that as well. So just take a moment. Uh, so there's a question. How lucky are your friends and your neighbors to know that you're a Christian? How would they know through what you do, what you say and how or how you live? So I'll pause here. All right, so I mean, some of the challenges is, um, and I was talking to uh, to somebody about this recently, just about uh, his dad and the workplace, and um, you know, some workplaces it's very difficult to share that uh, that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and other workplaces it's easier. Sometimes it's something you bring up. Sometimes it's a, uh, your closer network of friends who hang out with you a little while; they'll get to know, and um, other times, yeah. I remember for me, it was, it was, it was difficult at first. And then later on, I just talked about it a bit more. And then one of the challenges, though, I've said before is being a pastor is that once people know that you're a pastor, it either turns a conversation to a strange direction or it ends a conversation. And, uh, and it's just, yeah, it's awkward. Yes, it is awkward. Well, I can like to say, oh yeah, I'm a yeah. Especially if you say I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, to be like, oh, wow. Well. 
invited to many uh, luncheons of secondary people. Do, you ever Do I get invited to luncheons by? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Because I yeah. had my pastor at lunch one time, and the guys found out, and it did change the. Oh yeah. Well, I shared though. I mean, I went to a hockey game once with a buddy, and we're and there's three of us. So I was with this one guy. And he, I don't think he was a Christian, but he knew, obviously, I was a pastor. And then he had another buddy and the, the other guy. And we we're sitting there and he just, and then blankety blank, and then F and blankety blank, and blank, blank. And we talked for hours and whatever. I mean, that's that's how I used to speak all the time. So I, I, I'm i very familiar with this uh, mode of speaking. Um, and, and then finally, just say, hey, man, I've never even asked you. What do you do? I'm like, oh, no. And I said, well, I'm a, said, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. And he's just even going, and you see his mind just racing. He's like, what did I say? What did I say? And he's just like, oh. And then that was it. He never said another word, right? It was just like, yeah. Well, I mean, Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of the, his commentary on the uh, Beatitudes, I think is just, just outstanding. He's a pastor from the early 20th century, uh, physician, pastor. Um, he says this, he says, uh, he, he puts out an awkward question. He goes, and if you and I are not, in this primary sense, problems and enigmas to non-Christians around us, then this will tell us a great deal about our profession of the Christian faith. So he says, we should be a little bit of an enigma. And I remember the guy who was instrumental in leading me to Jesus was an enigma. He did things that were just like, who does that? Like, I remember, I remember he was walking along. And this is when I was living in China. And there's a, there was a, a tap that was on and the water was running. And, you know, it's just left running. And, and he was walking along and he stopped and he just walked over and he turned it off and then he just carried on. I'm like, who does that? Why did he, but it stood out to me. It was an enigma. It was this guy's a little bit different. But with this, uh, it, it, when I think about Jesus's teaching here, what Jesus is saying is a bit of an enigma. I mean, on one hand, when Jesus says, "Blessed are the meek, for the for they shall inherit the earth," on one hand, people would hear an echo of Scripture. They would hear an echo from the Psalms. Psalm 37 in particular, and we'll, and we'll touch on that in a moment. But on the other hand, Jesus's teaching here would run counter to what a lot of people were expecting from this Jesus of Nazareth. For example, many people were looking at Jesus and expecting and listening for something that was maybe a little more aggressive and maybe a little more militaristic. What they were hoping for was a teaching that would address the real problem of the first century Jewish person. And what was the problem? They had a name. The Romans. The Romans were the problem. And they were probably listening for some indication that this Jesus, who was attracting so much attention, thinking maybe this guy is the Messiah. Is he the Messiah? We're not sure. Well, why is he talking about being meek? What he should be talking about is how to get rid of these no good rotten Romans from the land of Israel. So they were looking for a Messiah who would lead the people into freedom and establish God's kingdom on earth with God's enemies completely vanquished. But some people, when they heard Jesus, may have been disappointed. 
And sometimes we get disappointed if we actually listen to what Jesus teaches. And sometimes we want Jesus to be a means to an end. We want him to, you know, um, accomplish our, our, our social programs or, or, or the, the changes that we want to see in the political landscape. And that's been a challenge throughout history. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm not, I'm not like that picture, what you, that picture that you have of me. And neither is my kingdom. Blessed are the meek. Not blessed is my power to destroy the Romans. Or blessed are my organizational skills to overthrow the government and make Israel Jewish again. Blessed are the meek. So this beatitude, how does it relate to the other beatitudes? If you've been tracking so far, you'll see that this one actually flows logically. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit is a vision of confession. I don't have what it takes. I don't bring anything to the table. I am poor in spirit. I could never on my own enter into God's kingdom. And God looks at you and says what? Congratulations. You got it. Only those who realize that they don't got it are the ones who can come in. If you strut up to the kingdom of God and say, God, you're sure lucky to have me as part of your kingdom. You're not going to enter in. Blessed are those who mourn is the vision of contrition. When we say the holiness of God and we look at our own hearts, it's like, yikes. And then when we look at the problems in this world and the way things are, you can get the way the things could be, our hearts begin to break. And so there's a connection here. And Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about that. I think I have a quote down there for you. Okay, so how does blessed are the meek how does this follow these two beatitudes? Well, the first two beatitudes are all about our relationship with God. So how, how do we approach God? We recognize we're poor in spirit. I don't have what it takes. And God says, you got it. Congratulations. You're in. When I look at my heart, oh, I don't have what it takes. And when I look at who God is and I look at my heart, my heart breaks. I feel the weight of my sin. I feel the pain of the pain of the world. Where this one falls from that, what this one does is, is it actually is more about how we relate to one another as well as how we relate to God. And specifically, this one <laughs> deals with how I will respond to others who look at me and treat me as one who is poor in spirit and sat over my sin and the sins of the world. Let me explain. How will I respond when people treat me as a beggar and a mourner? So if I say, hey, do you know what? There's nothing I bring to the table. It's all God's grace. I bring nothing to the table. And somebody looks at, you, looks at me and says, David, you're so right. You bring nothing to the table. Oh, well, thanks. If I say, you know, my heart, I look at who, who Jesus is. I look at his goodness and I just can't help but see the sin in my heart. And somebody says, yeah, we can see it too, David. Um, you're right. You're right. You are um, nothing but a dirty, rotten sinner. 
And I'd be like, I, I never said dirty rotten. Um, <laughs> and if somebody says, you know what? This shortcoming that you're saying, David, this being poor in spirit and not measuring up and being full of sin, we look at you and we see this in you. Oh, wait a minute. It's one thing to recite a confession where I confess I am a miserable sinner. It's another thing for somebody to come up to you and say, yes, David, you are a miserable sinner. Because <laughs> if somebody came up to me and said, yes, uh, you are a miserable sinner. <laughs> I'd be tempted to say, I'll show you who's a miserable sinner. You want to? Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> But this is a principle that's introduced in this beatitude. And it's more humbling and humiliating than what I've experienced. It happens when I allow people to put a searchlight on me. And it allows like people to say, yeah, this is, I can see that you're, you're messed up, David. And be like, well, ouch. So who is a meek person? Who is a meek person? What are the qualities of a meek person? Hey, shut them out. Well, just now you have the benefit if you're here on Sunday, you'll know ah, meek doesn't really mean me. Okay. But just typically in our world, when we say meek, what, what are some words that come to mind? Yeah. Weak. What else? But. Timid. Gutless. Humble. That's more positive. Yeah. But humble in kind of a, ah, that kind of way, right? uninteresting really boring oh yeah no it's true on too many dating sites how many i'm looking for a meek guy you know <laughs> he's got to be tall handsome and meek you know <laughs> no you know that's not usually one of the uh one of the things you're looking for maybe it is i don't know i i, I don't know i've never been on a dating site so i don't know um well we do know that Surely this cannot be what Jesus means by meek. It can't be. Uh, it, usually it conveys someone with little intelligence, no muscle, no backbone, backbone uh, tendency to be weak. People walk over them. But that can't be who is meek. Because in the Bible, we know there are two people who are called meek. Who are they? Moses and Jesus, yes, we know in Moses. Now, the, the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who are on the face of the earth. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, meek, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. Now, if both Moses and Jesus were described as meek, then it must have a different meaning. I mean, because when I look at Moses, yeah, okay, he's meek, but... <laughs> He's, he's pretty tough. And so, to quote the great philosophical piece of art, The Prince's Bride, I don't think that word means what you think it means, right? I don't think meek means... <laughs> Thanks, Mike. <laughs> that was an unnecessary setup, yeah. Um, what does meek mean? The other guy who talks a lot about meekness is who? Is Paul, right? Paul has a lot to say about meekness. In fact, he talks about it a lot. Uh, for Paul, his desire is to live a meek life and to call others to meekness. 
In 2 Corinthians 10.1, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've been called with, quote, all humility and gentleness, which is a word for meekness. In Colossians 3, so as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. One of the fruit of the Spirit is translated as gentleness, but it's a word for meek. And yet Paul, does he come across as this kind of wimpy, milk toast, no backbone kind of guy? Have you read 1 Corinthians? <laughs> Have you read? For, I mean... Paul's got, in, in the olden days, we'd say he's got moxie, right? He's got moxie, yes. He was shipwrecked, beaten, stoned, left for dead, debating with the key, key leaders of the day, standing before political powers, and yet he's meek. So if Moses, Jesus, and Paul, they're all meek, meek must mean something else. And then the other big question to ask is, why is meekness a sign of being gospelized? Why is meekness a sign of being brought into the kingdom of God? So what is it? Well, we know that meekness is not a natural quality, right? This is something you have to get for all the Beatitudes. It's not a natural quality. It's not natural. So blessed are those who are poor in spirit or are not about people's economic bracket. Blessed are those who mourn is not about those who are melancholic. Blessed are the meek are not about people who are shy. Every Christian, not just those who are meek-like, is are called, we're called to be meek. And part of being part of the kingdom of God means we are to become meek. We are to have this supernatural spirit-empowered meekness. So for you and I to live and to flourish in the kingdom of God, in God's sovereign, in God's kingdom for this, this world that's broken into this world, for us to enter into this and to flourish, we need to be meek. And so meek, the meek are not shy introverts. They're not easygoing in temperament. They're not nice guys. They're not people that avoid conflict. The meekness has to do with the heart. So what is meekness? Well, it's, it's connected. it has to be connected to power somehow. It has to be connected to strength because Moses, Jesus, and Paul all exert power, but in a particular way. They're all influential, but they're all meek. The word, which you probably came across on the weekend when Sam was preaching this, is the word is prayas. And it's often translated as gentle, humble, considerate, courteous. So meekness is connected, and this is important right from the get-go, that meekness is connected to self-control. The self-control. The Greek philosopher Aristotle described meekness as a middle ground between excessive anger on one side and the inability to show anger at all. So that's typical Aristotle. It's a golden mean, somewhere in the middle. William Barclay says, blessed is the man who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. Hmm, that's interesting. Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself. This is interesting. What Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we're getting closer. Meekness is essentially a true view of oneself, expressing itself in attitude and conduct with respect to others. 
And it follows from the first two Beatitudes because a meek person knows they bring nothing to the table. A meek person knows their hearts. And a meek person is also one who will hunger and thirst for righteousness, which we'll look at next week. A meek person does not live for himself or herself. They do not push themselves to the front of the line. They do not make demands. They do not say, you need to respect me. They don't get... <laughs> what the, Mike, what, what does uh, Rick Watts say? They don't get chuffed. They don't get chuffed. <laughs> that was one. He was an Australian speaker on the weekend. We learned all sorts of new words that I'd never heard before. Um, but they don't get chuffed <laughs> when, uh, when, when somebody treats them poorly. They don't seek out status in life. So a meek person is different. And a model of meekness is, of course, Jesus Christ. So let's take a look what this looks like. Uh, do you have your Bibles? Turn to Philippians chapter 2. This is a picture of meekness. Now, as I read this, I want you to write down, or I want you to take note what stands out. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. This is Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is, your, which is yours. You hear what he says? This is yours. This is given to you. It's part of being in the kingdom of God, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he's in the very form of God, very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Okay, let me hear from you. What stands out in this? If we're talking about meekness, what are some of the qualities that stand out? Sacrifice. Yeah. So thinking of others better than yourself. Yeah. What else? He humbled himself. But explain, what, what does that mean? You see it in the text. like Because he's saying he humbled himself. So what? So he was yeah, yeah. So he's other focus. He's willing to 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 um. He's willing to die for the sake of others. Yeah. Servant, and he was willing to become man. And who was he, or who is he? <laughs> yeah, though in very nature God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant in the likeness of man. So he, if you look at this passage, it, 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 it shows us how this, this power that we're talking about fit, fits in with self-restraint. In essence, the meek are downwardly mobile. 
like the character of God himself, the meek disadvantage themselves to the advantage of others. And so one who is meek is not sensitive about himself or herself. They're not always watching out for their own interests. They're not always trying to move up the corporate ladder. They don't get upset when, with what people say about them. And they're not defensive. Let me put it differently. The meek do not give a rip about image control. Let me put it differently. The meek are not always on Instagram. <laughs> So if you take in my class on the seven deadly sins, the meek are opposite to what kind of person? The vainglorious person. Absolutely. Yes. And so we can ask ourselves an awkward question, which I like to do. How much time do we spend defending ourselves? You're like, I, I don't defend myself. Okay. See what I did there? <laughs> I defend myself. <laughs> How much time do we spend defending ourselves and presenting an image of ourselves that we want other people to accept? And how do we feel when we are misrepresented and misunderstood? Honestly. What's that? Angry. Well, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I make a lot of effort to correct that narrative. So you think rightly of me. Or you, you think of me in the way that I want you to think of me, which may not be rightly. And that's a vainglorious person. Because a vainglorious person doesn't want to be seen as they truly are. They want to be seen as how they want you to see them, right? When a person is meek, they're done with image control. And this tells us something about meekness. It actually has something to do with humility. But what does it mean to be humble? Again, another misunderstood word. What does it mean to be humble? Okay, not wanting to be first and letting others, like deferring to others. Yeah, okay. I'm taking credit for something. Okay, not in letting other people shine and not taking the credit. Yeah, good. Ah, I knew Jeremy, you're gonna get there. Well done. Or that could be Sylvia. It's probably Sylvia. No. <laughs> Don't be defensive, Jeremy. Um, Jeremy puts, and this is uh, Richard Foster. I love this. Um, this isn't Richard Foster on Zoom, but uh, Richard Foster's line that humility is appropriate smallness. I love that because it's not about going, oh, I'm no good. It's just like, I know I'm not this. This is who I am. It's, it's, it's seeing yourself appropriately. I really like that. I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. <laughs> it's just you don't think about yourself. And to be meek is to let go of pitying yourself and instead recognizing that our lives flourish only in so far as we see our lives in light of God. Put differently, it is to live our lives before an audience of one. 
we live our lives before God, the God of the universe who created you, cares about you, and desires for you to flourish. And when we forget God or try to live our lives independent of God, it's easy to be overcome by the challenges that come our way. And then we begin to interpret everything as woe is me. This is my, you know, really rough state that I'm in. And we miss just what God may be doing in and through our lives. Now, I want to give you a fun example of this. I think it's fun. It's a great story. I actually have the story written out, I think, in your notes. Do I? The horse and his boy? Yeah. Yeah. So this is from, how many of you have ever read Horse and His Boy? Anybody ever read that? I see two hands. Lori, of course. Yeah. And Mike, twice. Yeah. because you. Uh, <laughs> Sylvia or Jeremy? Yeah. Jeremy, you've seen it or you've read it? Oh, Sylvia. <laughs> Let me tell you the story. Okay. So I think this, this, this tells the story quite well. And it's, it's just kind of fun. So I'll set up the story. It's a great title, The Horse and His Boy, not the boy and his horse, but The Horse and His Boy. And it's a story of this boy who was, um, he's orphaned and he's, he's, he's kind of lost. He has a very oppressive, uh, he thought it was his dad, but it turns out it wasn't his dad and his, and his dad was willing to sell him into slavery. So he goes on the run. And he brings a horse with him. Now it's a Narnia. It's a Chronicles of Narnia written by C.S. Lewis. And so the animals in the land of Narnia can, can speak. And so he goes with his horse and the horse and he kind of worked together to, to escape. Anyhow, Shasta is just, he's at his wit's end at this point. Uh, he's supposed to um, send a message. He's lost. He's in the mountains and he's cold and he's lonely and he starts looking back at his life and he says, my life has just been terrible. And this is what happens. And being very tired and having nothing inside of him, Shasta felt so sorry for himself that tears rolled down his cheeks. What put a stop to all this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. Now it's pitch dark and he could see nothing. And the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale, and Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he had really no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. It darted in his mind that he had heard long ago that there were giants. In these northern countries, he bit his lip in terror. But now that he really had something to cry about, he stopped crying. I love that line. <laughs> the thing, unless it was a person, went on beside him so very quietly that Shasta began to hope that he had only imagined it. But just as he was becoming quite sure of it, then suddenly there came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him. That couldn't be imagination. Anyway, he had felt the hot breath of the sigh on his chilly left hand. If the horse had been any good, or if he had known how to get any good out of the horse, he would have risked anything to, on a breakaway on a, and a wild gallop. But he knew he couldn't make that horse gallop. So he went on at a walking pace, and the unseen companion walked and breathed beside him. At last, he could bear it no longer. Who, who, who are you? He said, barely above a whisper. 
one who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. His voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are, 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 you, are you a giant? asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said a large voice, but I am not like the creatures you call giants. I can't see you at all, said Shasta, after staring very hard. Then, and even for a more terrible idea had come into his head, he said almost in a scream, you're, you're not something dead, are you? Oh, please, oh, please do go away. What harm have I ever done you? Oh, I am the unluckiest person in the whole world. Once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, this is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Well, Shasta was a little reassured by the breath. So he told him how he had never known his real father or mother, and he'd been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives, of the dangers in this place called Tashban, and about his night in the tombs and how beasts howled at him out of the desert. And he told him about the heat and the thirst of the desert journey and how they were almost at their goal, when a lion, another lion chased them and wounded, this is his com traveling companion, this woman, a young woman named Erebus, and also how very long it was since he had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Well, don't you think it was bad luck to, be, to, to meet so many lions, said Shasta? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I just told you there are at least two lions that first night. There was only one, but he was swift of foot. Well, how do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with an open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you as you slept. I was the lion who gave you the horses for new strength for fear that last mile so that you should reach King Loon in time. I was the lion, do you not remember, who pushed the boat? I was the lion, you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight to receive you. And just keep going down. He goes, who are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice, very deep and low so that the earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear and gay. And then for the third time, myself whispered so softly that you could hardly hear it. And yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. Shasta was no longer afraid, but the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that was the voice of a ghost, but a new and different sort of trembling came over him. Yet he felt glad too. The mist was turning from black to gray, from gray to white. This must have begun to happen some time ago. But while he had been talking to the thing, he had not noticed anything else. Now the whiteness around him became a shining whiteness, and his eyes began to blink. Somewhere ahead, he heard birds singing. He knew the night was over at last. He could see the mane and ears and head of the horse quite clearly now. A golden light fell on them from the left. He thought of it was the sun. And he turned and saw, pacing beside him, taller than any horse, a lion. The horse did not seem to be afraid of it, nor or of it, or, or could not see it. It was from the lion that the light came. 
no one ever saw anything more terrible or more beautiful. He just jumped down one and he goes, the high king above all kings stooped towards him. Its mane and some strange and solemn perfume that hung around the mane was all around him. It touched his forehead with his tongue. He lifted his face and their eyes met. Then instantly the pale brightness of the mist and the fiery brightness of the lion rolled together themselves together into a swirling glory and gathered themselves up and disappeared. The transfiguration moment. He was alone with the horse on a grassy hillside under a blue sky, and there were birds singing. If you know the story of the Chronicles of Narnia, you know that this lion is Aslan, who's a Christ figure. And part of what it means to be meek is the, the meek are realistic about life. But being realistic about life is that they see their life in light of God. Shasta, he just said, I'm just the most unfortunate person. And the lion reminded him, like, no, I was, I was there every step of the way. You just didn't have eyes to see. And what the meek do, the meek are able to live their lives recognizing that God is a lot more present in their lives than they realize. They're poor in spirit. They mourn their sins and the pains of the world, but they're content to live their lives before an audience of one. And so they don't get overwhelmed. When you live your life before an audience of one, you don't get overwhelmed by what people think of you. You really don't. Now, I remember my own journey, um, I really struggled with that. And it's not like I'm free from it at all. <laughs> I still fall into that. But I remember when I began to realize just how much Jesus loves me. And just practically, what Jesus thinks of me as a person. That he really does delight in me. And he really loves me. Well, if he does, then... Okay, if somebody says something mean to me on Facebook, yeah, I think I'm okay. But if you have a depleted self, if you don't know who you are and you don't know how loved you are, then more often than not, you're going to look for that affirmation from people around you. And then you are subject to forces outside of you that are fickle and capricious and you don't know what they're going to say. And you'll spend all your life doing image control, trying to impress people who don't really matter. Right? This is the challenge for us. So I ask myself, how much time do I think about, how much time do I spend thinking about myself? How much time do I spend considering what other people think of me? How much time do I spend fretting about this and trying to reshape perceptions of me? Well, hours and days and years. Again, when our feelings about our life are dependent upon what people say or what they don't say, maybe they don't like our post or they don't like yeah, those sorts of, well, then we're in prison. And so one of the things about meekness is that it sets us free. Meekness sets us free. The meek person is free. Because the meek person lives in the freedom that the gospel brings. He or she is done with playing with popularity, upwardly mobile game, because they know that they are loved with a deep love. 
by the one that matters. And there's such freedom in meekness as understood in the gospel. And the meek are teachable. They're, they're deeply teachable because they're not trying to impress people. I remember when I was, uh, I think I probably shared the story before, but I used to uh, work down in Omaha, Nebraska, center of America. Uh, I had a great time working in Omaha, but I remember I was working at this church. Funny story how I even got hired, but I was working at this church and um, there's another intern. I was just an intern and, and um, this older fellow said, hey, would you like to come and pray with us? There's a bunch of us. We pray on Saturday mornings. We're like, sure. Yeah, we'll come Saturday morning. We'll come pray. Thanks for asking us. And so we came. And um, and all the guys were um, probably 85 years old and up. There's one guy who was in his 90s. And, and they're, they're quite old. And then I was in my 20s. And this other guy was like 23. And we're like, what are, what are we doing here? And um, one thing that was kind of interesting, they said, well, we'd like to pray now. And we're like, sounds good. We'll pray. Sure. Pray with these old guys. It'd be kind of fun, you know? And so, uh, so we close our eyes and we're praying. And I, I think I've told you this. And all I hear is creak, 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 creak. I'm like, what is making that sound? What's going on? And I open my eyes and all these guys who are 85 and up were getting off their chairs and getting down onto the ground to kneel. And I looked at my friend and we're like, oh man, we're in the presence of saints here. We were just so challenged by that. And I remember afterwards, there's a fellow named Les and he would have these prayer sheets, but he's, he's almost blind. And so they'd blow them up so that he could see them, right? This is before he could probably have an iPad and do that, right? And so they just had these prayer sheets and large, large print. And, and so I remember talking to Les, he had been a you know Christian for his whole life. And uh, we'd said, oh, you know, he asked us, he goes, you know, David, what's what's the Lord been teaching you? And I don't know, I have to come up with something. So I came up with something and I said, yeah. And he would just look at me and goes, well, that's, he goes, never thought about that before. That's, that's really good. That's really good. Thank you for sharing that with me. Meanwhile, like, what did I have to share with him? But he was just, there's such a, an openness and a humility. Um, and that's the thing, the meek are humble. They're not trying to impress. They'll take, you know, they'll learn from anyone, right? They, and I just remember less uh, demonstrating that, uh, that meekness. When we leave everything in God's hands, our lives, our future, our finances, we entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. And now this is going to come up, hey, in a couple of weeks when we talk about blessed are the persecuted. This is going to become a theme. That's, and you're going to find out how all these beatitudes are interconnected. And what does Jesus say was going to happen to the meek? The meek will what? Inherit the earth. Now, where's that from in the Bible? Psalm 37. Psalm 37. So turn to Psalm 37. Because if you want to know what this means, Psalm 37 is going to tell you. So the Psalms right in the middle. We won't read the whole Psalm because it's quite long, but I just want to touch on a couple things. Psalm 37 <clears throat> says, fret not yourself because of evildoers, nor be envious because of wrongdoers. 
for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourselves over the, um, over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off. But those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at him. But the wicked laugh at the wicked, uh, for the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that they are coming. And again and again, if you make your way through it, you'll come across the meek shall inherit the land. And so this is, this is the echo of scripture that Jesus is pointing to. And people would have heard this. Yeah, sure. We'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. How do we know? Like, in, well, in, in Psalm 37, it would probably be pointing towards Israel. Yeah. But when Jesus is saying the meek shall inherit the earth, um, the language is, is that of the kingdom of God breaking in throughout the whole world. How do we know that the meek shall inherit the earth? Well, God promises it. And Jesus teaches about the destiny of the meek. And now we know the meek shall inherit the earth. Do you know why? Because Jesus is meek and the earth belongs to him. As the Dutch prime minister and theologian Abraham Kuyper puts it, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, mine. And so the earth belongs to Jesus, the meek one. And either we align our lives with him, get in sync with him, or our lives do not work. But when we're in sync, we'll inherit the earth. Now, this psalm is interesting because this psalm basically lays out, hey, there's a lot of forces in this world that will do their best to defy the meek. Right. And it comes all throughout the psalm. You come across the non-meek <laughs> and how the non-meek want to come out on top of things. Uh, and see, it's the meek that are being crushed. And Psalm 37 is quite honest. Look how many times we come across forces in this world that are described as the wicked or evildoers or those who prosper in their way or carry out evil devices. They're the ones who are angry and full of wrath and plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth. They draw the sword. They bend their bows. They bring down the poor and the needy. They're in the business of slaying the upright. And you know what? You look around the world, you see a lot of this. But the psalm describes in the face of gnashing of teeth, in the face of arrogant pride and oppression, the meek shall inherit the earth. So who are the meek? According to the psalm, the meek are those who trust in the Lord. And to trust in the Lord doesn't mean this. Trust in the Lord means to throw yourself your entire life upon him. Who are the uh, meek? They are the ones who continue. 
That's right. Who are the meek? They are the ones who continue to do good in the face of evil. Verse 3. Who are the meek? They are the ones who remain faithful in the midst of the chaos of this world. Doesn't mean we don't stumble, but we carry on. Who are the meek? They are the ones who find rest in the Lord and his goodness. The meek are the ones who wait patiently on him, knowing that in the end, all shall be well. Now, this is a very important psalm, and this forms a background to the meek shall inherit the earth, because the reality is, is we live in a world where it sure doesn't seem like the meek will inherit the earth, does it? Where everything around us portrays a world like this, but in reality, what Jesus is saying is that the upside down world is actually the most right world, because the, the whole Sermon on the Mount turns the world upside down. Or turns it right side up. Now, I didn't, some of you guys know a little bit uh, of my background, but I remember, I remember when I was working for this company and I was up to no good and I was, I was uh, in charge of uh, bribery for this Hong Kong engineering company. And I was just, I was just a mess. But then in the midst of this, I become a Christian. And I'm like, what do I do now? And I remember um, I was in, I was in fighting with some of the guys in the company, and in order to leverage myself, I think I shared this before. I stole some documents. I held on to some documents, and I hold on to the documents, and I was going to return them if they paid me the money that they owed me. But then I became a Christian, and I'm like, apparently, I'm supposed to trust in Jesus now. Ugh! So I gave everything back, and they're like. What's he up to? Yeah, what are you doing? What are you doing? And they're like, they thought I was up to something. I'm like, no, man, really. I'm just going to give it back to you. Uh, No, really. And so, and then I left the company and it went well. And I thought, well, glory to God. You know, I did the right thing. I trusted in him. And it went well until I heard what everybody had said after I left. In the company, all the leaders in the company. Yeah, you know what? David stole some major documents. Yeah, yeah. He stole and he's he ripped us off thousands of dollars. And the the money that was ripped off was actually ripped off by the guys that were up to no good, but they blamed me and I was gone. And everybody in the company, all the leaders in the company just thought I was just as rotten, no good, thieving person who had just ripped off all this stuff from the company. But I hadn't. And every part of me wanted to defend myself until I read Psalm 37. (laughs) Until I read Psalm 73 as well. Psalm 73 says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, but I've I've stumbled. I've, I've nearly lost my foothold. And what it means is like, The guy in Psalm 73 says, I look around and I see how the fat cats get rich and they get away with murder. They get away with injustice. And I and I know, God, you're good, but you sure don't see good in the midst of all this. And if you look at Psalm 73 in particular, it says it gets to the certain point where it's just like when I thought when I thought about how the rich get away with murder and how the cheating get away with cheating. He says, when I thought about this, it was oppressive to me. And then there's this great line. I don't know if you know the line. It says, until I entered the sanctuary of God. 
And then I understood their final destiny. And I remember feeling so frustrated and wanting to defend myself. And I remember reading that Psalm and meditating on the Psalm. And I said, God, I entrust my life. I entrust them to you who judges justly. I'm not going to defend myself. I'm just going to leave it. And I remember a couple months later, I was working in Vancouver and I had heard through some friends who are still back in Shanghai that some guys, other guys in the company, <laughs> there's lots of corruption in this company. I was just one of many corrupt people. Um, this other faction in the company had snuck in and they basically overthrew the company and the company went bankrupt. And I thought, wow, I mean, this is just kind of like, and I just thought about this Psalm, Psalm 37. And I thought about Psalm 73 is that, you know, God is, God knows what's going on. He knows what's going on and he'll have the final word. And, and uh, there's this great line. I know we're supposed to be doing Psalm 37, but I do like uh, Psalm 73 as well. At the very end, it says this, um, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my God, Lord God, my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. And uh, that always spoke to me in my own life. One of the guys who I, th I think uh, exemplifies meekness in history is a guy that we've touched on is William Wilberforce. Some of you, how, you know William Wilberforce. Some of you put up your hand. Do you know? I see. Oh, a few of you. Okay. Not, not that many. Um, William Wilberforce is um, he's a well-known 18th century parliamentarian, and he was the key, one of the key figures in bringing about the abolition of the slave trade, as well as the abolition of slavery in, in, in Britain. Um, came from a, a pretty rough, not rough background, but pretty elitist background. Um, he was an MP at the age of, I think, 23. Oh, no, he was 20. When, when he was elected to parliament, 20 years old. What did I know at 20? You had to buy beer because I was 19, you know, I was 20 years old. That's about all I knew. His buddy, William Pitt, followed him to parliament. William Pitt, through a series of strange events, actually becomes prime minister at the age of 24, I think. 24, he's a prime minister of Britain. And it was the olden days. Yes, it was the olden days. Yeah. Yeah, but even back then, I remember when, I remember, I wasn't there, but I remember reading history that there, it was still unusual for somebody so young to uh, to become prime minister. Um, but for Wilberforce, he's an interesting guy because he's just kind of full of himself. You know, the world's his oyster. He's in his 20s and he's an MP and his best friend is now prime minister. So it's, it's all looking good. And um, usually his, he and his friend, they would go on a tour through France. That was kind of a trendy thing to do. You go through a tour, you, you, you travel through France in a carriage and you have, you know, great conversation with a traveling buddy. So he says to William Pitt, do you want to come with me? William Pitt says, no, hey, man, I'm now prime minister. I can't go with you. He's like, oh, so he finds this old tutor of his from Cambridge, a guy named Isaac Milner. He says, can you come with me? Gosh, you're all come with you. But he doesn't know that Milner is a Christian. And so for months, or for, I think I was months, it ended up being months, uh, they're just debating because Wilberforce was not a Christian. He has no interest in Jesus. But Milner where, challenges him. And by the end of the trip, Wilberforce says, I think I'm a Christian. I think I, he, he gave his life to Christ. But then 
he's in a dilemma because he's an MP. It's not cool to be an evangelical and to be in politics. But when he was a kid, his aunt and uncle took him to see this one preacher preach, a guy named John Newton, until his mom found out about it and pulled him out. But Newton was now a pastor in London at the time. Wilberforce knew that. And so in the middle of the night, knocks on his door. He goes, Uncle John. He goes, it's, it's me, Wilbur. You know, it's William Wilberforce. This is what's happened to me. And uh, what should I do? Should I become a pastor? And Newton says, no, don't become a pastor. Stay where you're at. And uh, so he keeps visiting um, John Newton at, at night, uh, like so on, or, or he'd come on Sunday mornings, he'd come before the crowds got there and kind of hide behind a curtain and then leave after the crowds left. He'd just kind of do it secretly. And then finally he said, I'll oh, forget it. I'll do, I don't care if people know. And in all that, God gave him a great call, two great calls. What, is, what, what are they? Reformation of manners, which is to bring about social change within society, reform. The second one is the abolition of the slave trade. And one of the things about Wilberforce, he was a remarkable speaker. A remar he was very short, but a remarkable speaker in Parliament. They said he looked like a shrimp. He stood up and spoke. He, sounded, he, he became a whale. He was that good of a speaker. But he also had deep, deep, uh, he had colitis. And, and it was in deep, deep pain a lot of his life. And the only treatment for the pain was laudanum, which was opium um, um, diffused in, in alcohol. And he didn't want to do that because it clouded his mind. So he lived most of his life in, in, in a lot of pain. But the thing about Wilberforce that's so interesting is that he was able to bring about through incredible tenacity and, and community as well. Community is a big part. But tenacity and community. Um, and he was challenged to enter into this cause of the abolition of the slave trade by a guy who was a former slave, a guy named Olauda Equiano, who was a former slave who was set free and who, was, who actually challenged Wilberforce to take this seriously. And that's where Wilberforce kind of um, got focused in on it. But the thing about Wilberforce is during the entire campaign to bring about the end of the slave trade, he never, he never spoke ill of any people in particular. And there's a lot of horrible people who are involved in, but he, he, he never spoke ill of people, but he spoke ill of the slave trade. And what he did, you say he was this exemplar of being meek because he had tremendous power because he could have called out a lot of guys. But he didn't because he wanted to build bridges and make as many, because um, he had to build bridges in order to pass passed the bill to bring about the abolition. And he does in 1807. And then Wilberforce dies in 1833. And just before he dies, I think five days before he dies, um, the slave trade is abolished in the British Empire. So it's, it's quite a remarkable story. But there's this meekness, there's this a tremendous strength in Wilberforce that he has restrained and he lived his life and he kept going. And this is this one historian, a woman named Sarah Williams puts it. She goes, in our day and age, we have so many causes. There's so many great causes that you and I can get involved in. What we lack in our age is not causes. What we lack in our age is tenacity and endurance. Because Wilberforce does not give up. He had every reason to give up. It was very difficult, but he doesn't. And he carries on to the very end. So he shows great perseverance because he lived his life before an audience of one. And I think that's a, that's a tremendous story. So what does it mean to be meek? 
E. Stanley Jones says, the meek are those who, quote, want nothing from the world of men and things and yet are willing to share everything because they feel so deeply. As hydrogen and oxygen, two diverse elements coming together, produce an entirely new product, water, so the spirit of renunciation and the spirit of service coming together in a man make a new being, a most formidable, a most formidable being on earth, the terrible meek. <laughs> They're terrible in that they want nothing, and hence they cannot be tempted, cannot be bought, in that they are willing to go at any length for others because they feel so deeply. And there's this uh, old expression from a guy named Ignatius of Loyola, who's a founder of the Jesuits. But it's an interesting expression that I've always latched on to. Um, and here's the expression. It is to have a life of holy indifference. Holy with an H, holy indifference. So indifference without the holy is like, I don't care. That's not. Holy indifference is because I live before God, all these other things don't matter. Accolades don't matter. Image don't, doesn't matter. None of those things matter because I live my life before an audience of one, before the God who created me, who redeemed me, and who loves me. And do you know what? That's enough. And every now and then, Every now and then, I get a glimpse of what that looks like. And I'll tell you, you know what word comes to mind? Freedom. It is so freeing. Because I don't have to impress. Because I'm loved by the one that matters. And that should be enough. And so the meek know that they are deeply loved. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so my desire is that uh, the people will remember me, not for my accomplishments, but for, the, for being me. Like I, I want to become a gospelized person who reflects the character of his master, Jesus Christ, and the character of meekness. Is that your desire? Yeah? Sebastian, is that your desire? Yeah? Yeah. Why don't I pray, and then we can uh, open it up to some questions. Let's pray. Jesus, this is our desire. We know that you love us. And our challenge is, is, is learning to believe what we say we believe. We know this, but we don't know this. Uh, if we truly knew this, we would, we would live meek lives, lives of, uh, of power, but also of restraint. Uh, of of being content with living before an audience of one and not trying to always be about image control or trying to create impressions for others to to have about ourselves or 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 to be quick to defend ourselves. Instead, we would have open hands in the same way, Jesus, that you did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but you emptied yourself. He took on the form of a servant, became in the likeness of man. And your love was so deep that you went to the cross for us. But we know that you've been exalted, that you are Lord, and that before you every knee shall bow. Lord, help us to live our lives before you and the freedom that comes with that. Teach us to be meek. 
for the meek shall inherit the earth. We ask these things not in our own strength, but in Jesus' name. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.